Today on More Than a Test, we have Dr. Yamasaki from Emory University. The fun thing about talking to researchers is they have so much to talk about. They have great ideas. They love to talk about other people's ideas and everything they've seen. The fun thing about this conversation is she is just changing the game with the amount of things that she's invested in and involved in and learning about. And so today we're gonna to talk about multilingual learners, early readers, literacy, literacy brains, and how it's different for kids who speak different languages. And while we're really excited at Amira that Amira works in English and Spanish, we're gonna talk about other languages today too. It's a really great conversation. We're gonna go deep. Thanks for being here and let's get started. Dr. Yamasaki, thank you so much for being here. Of course, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. You're joining us from Emory University where you are preparing for some classes on what we talked about was learning in the brain and you are a developmental cognitive neuroscientist. Am I saying that right? Yep, that's perfect. And most of your research, um, well, I wouldn't say most, you have such a large body of research, but the research that I have found really compelling and interesting is around the importance of language diversity in learning about language development, reading um, and, and literacy. And I'm just so curious, um, Tell me why that's so important. Why is it so important that we have language diversity in this research? Because science of reading is is big right now, but I right. think that there there's a net like the next wave is coming and it's around language diversity. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I absolutely agree. So I think there's a couple important points here. First, if we think about not only the United States where I do research, where I do teaching, where I do outreach, but also the world, it's very linguistically diverse. And in fact, the U.S. Um, compared to the world is not even a good representation of how much diversity we have in languages. So I think if we're trying to truly understand how someone develops language or learns to read, we need to consider linguistic diversity because that is the natural state of humans. Most humans uh, learn or are exposed to multiple languages. And so thinking about how that might impact their ability to use the language, understand the language, learn to read, um, all of those different aspects of how language is used is really important. So I think that's the first thing. I think linguistic diversity is representation representative of humans and therefore we should consider it. But I think the other really important point is that when someone is linguistically diverse, there are additional challenges that may arise when they're trying to use or learn their language, whether that's oral language or reading. And so if we don't consider that, we're kind of missing, um, important information about how to support all learners. So my research mostly has focused on those groups of individuals that have sometimes been um, neglected in, in the research. It's interesting that you you brought up the challenges, and I would like to talk about that because I actually read something that there are also benefits to being a multilingual learner. And I think one of the articles I was reading about was that um, possibly improved executive functioning from multilingual learning. Um, so I'd like to talk a little bit about that because something I heard you say on another podcast was a hundred years ago, you were acting like kids couldn't learn in two languages and yeah. that we saw it as a deficit, right? And, and that was so long ago. And I would tell you that's not that long ago. As someone who is in schools and districts across the country, yeah. there are still plenty of places treating multilingual learning and multilingual learners as, as having deficits. So tell me a little bit about, first let's talk about you know, what, are the, what are the things we're learning about advantages. And then let's talk a little bit about the barriers sure. too. Sure. Yeah. So um, I will say first, before I kind of get into this, the field of whether or not there are advantages for being a multilingual learner um, is still developing. And I think we're still trying to learn about what really these advantages might look like. Um, and I think the other thing um, is when I talk about it, I like to just talk about it as a difference. So broadly speaking, 
every experience we have changes the brain. It changes how we interact with our world, how we learn and how we experience everything. And so it's not that surprising that if you learn one language or you learn multiple languages, that that different experience would be reflected in the brain or how we interact with with our world. So I think that's the first thing to remember, that every experience changes the brain. Um, and this overall idea is what leads to what some people call a bilingual advantage or a multilingual advantage or a, a bilingual difference. And, and it is true, like you said, that a lot of people have started to look at this idea of executive functioning, which I know is a topic that's um, discussed in, in the school system a lot, but it's also really um, a growing topic in research and executive functioning for listeners that don't know are your high level skills that allow you to you know, pay attention to something that you want to focus on and limit distractions or multitask, you know, those high level cognitive skills. And there is some research to suggest, especially in um, little ones or in the upper age range, that being a multilingual um, learner or language user does have some advantages, changes the way the executive functioning system um, is engaged when you're using language. And there's consequences um, in other domains when that same system needs to be engaged. So I think there is a growing body of research here. But again, there's a lot of nuance because human experience is complicated. And right. so exactly the aspects that relate to potential differences, um, we're still trying to unwrap. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate you kind of you know, pulling back the layers on that for us. Um, so let's talk a little bit about science of reading. So um, uh, you know, I, th I think the way this is being portrayed for most people, and I think that there's some some real understanding around, we, we have a new understanding of how reading happens, about how, how kids learn to read and the way the brain works to make that happen, which is really exciting because I think for a while there, we were kind of just like putting kids in front of books and hoping they learn to read. And now, now yeah. we know the explicit instruction is really important. And so I'm curious, you know, when you, when you see this great research around, you know, neuroscience and literacy, how is that translating for students who, who are not learning to read in English? So I'm not talking about bilingual students. I'm talking about kids yeah. who are learning to read in Spanish, in Mandarin, and something else. Is it the same? Are we learning different things? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. I think um, at the core, there's a lot of overlap. So the reading network in the brain, the types of um, skills that we need to recruit to be able to learn to read and to read proficiently are pretty common across languages. So many of the strategies we're talking about when someone is trying to learn to read in English carry over to other languages. So there's definitely a lot of consistency, but certain languages... Um, you know, rely on different features, or there may be aspects of the language that are more prominent. For example, in some languages in the written form, spatial arrangement of how the characters are arranged or written out is more important than in others. And so you'll need more of those spatial skills when you're learning to read and trying to decode that written form. So at the core, I think there's a lot of consistency. The things we're talking about in terms of learning to read in English are the same as learning to read in any other language, but dependent on the written form and the features that are most relevant to that language, there are some slight differences, but it's kind of like um, an extension of that common network that we know is important for learning to read. That's great. I think that's super helpful. Now let's talk about a student. So a student who is learning to read in, in two languages, what you're telling yeah. me, I just heard you say is there's a lot of overlap, right? Which, right. Which, which almost if you, especially like as someone who can learn to, who learned to read Arabic as an adult, um, like now I, I can, I can totally see it, but it seems if you don't, if you don't read a language with a, a different alphabet, it's really hard to imagine, yeah. but there actually is a lot of overlap. Tell me a little bit about that. 
Yeah, for sure. So a lot of the core foundation um, that we talk about in terms of reading English is going to be the same in other languages. So thinking about at its base form, reading has taken a written symbol, connecting it to sounds and meaning. That's going to be the case for any language. The structure of that written form, how much information you can pull from that written form, um, that's going to differ. So Arabic is a very challenging language to learn to read in, especially as an adult. So um, congrats on on working through that. Um, but the, the written form of Arabic is very different than, say, English. The type of information that's contained in the written form, especially if you're using the adult form, can be very challenging. So at its base, the same. We're taking a written form. We need to get sound and meaning. We need to connect it to our oral language, our knowledge, to be able to understand what is trying to be communicated. But things like um, spatial information, like I talked about before, or the importance of the um, phonology, the sound system, tone, things like that, that are important in the oral language form, um, they're going to vary across languages. And when you're learning two languages, so you presumably know how to read in English, and now you've added in Arabic. Um, so you had a foundation already about what it was like to learn to read in English. And as an adult, or if you already are proficient in reading in one language, you can kind of capitalize on those similarities. So the things that were the same between English and Arabic, your brain already knew, they already learned those skills. And you can kind of use that as a foundation, a stepping up point to be able to learn the, the second language. That's true for kids as well. But often kids coming into the school system, aren't necessarily proficient readers in their first language. They're young. They haven't had that explicit exposure. So it's slightly different for kids, but the same idea um, carries through. If there are similarities, they can capitalize on that um, and kind of help bolster both languages. It's so interesting because you said something that I think is so obvious to you and I, but I don't think it's obvious to everyone. So the concept of learning to read is also something kids have to learn, right? This idea that like when you see a word yeah. on the page, you look at that word and there is meaning and there is sounds to be found there is right. so obvious to people who already read, but so like such a mystery to children. And I think something that has been great about science of reading is that a lot for a long time, we were kind of saying like reading is like walking. It's natural. Eventually you will just get it. And it is not the case. In fact, explicit instruction is incredibly important. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. Uh, we were just talking before we started recording about the fact that I'm teaching a brain and language class to undergrads at Emory University. And one of the things we talk about is that there's many forms of language. There's the oral form of language, there's signs form of language, there's written forms of language, um, and they all have similar communication goals. But the um, way in which those develop are very different. So for oral language, for example, assuming you're in um, a rich context where you're exposed to that language, learning oral language is going to be very natural. You know, children start that process very, very early in that first year of life. They may have some struggles. They may need some support. But in general, they're kind of um, already ready to receive that information and learn the oral language. The written form of language, reading and writing, that's very, very different. As you said, you need explicit learning. That's not something that happens naturally. You're not going to just naturally start to read if you're never exposed to it or taught anything about it. So we talk a lot about that in, in my class with my undergrads, that there are many forms of language and some of them are more natural. Some of them, you know, um, the, the brain is ready to receive and ready to learn. And others, we have to be really clear about what do we mean by reading? You know, it's a little bit unnatural and it's also a newer form of language, right? So we've had oral language for a long time. Written language in terms of human evolution is much more recent. And that's why the brain isn't as maybe well adapted to it yet. Interesting. Okay. So let's talk a little bit more about multilingual learners um, because 
I know that's where a lot of your information, and I actually, I couldn't find any research on this. This might not be your area of expertise, but I want to ask anyways, because I hear it so often. What I hear so often is in English, we are, we learn to read through phonemes. In Spanish, we learn to read, we learn to read through syllables. And when I talk to the top researchers, they kind of say it's more of a mix of that, but I'm curious what you think. Yeah, so this isn't my explicit area of research. So I will just say kind of what I've learned from speaking to other researchers that do study um, work in this area. But I would agree with what you've heard before. It is a mixture. Again, it's reading has many different components. Um, and I think for each language, you kind of dial up on some and dial down on others. But for most languages, you need all of those components in there. So um, in English, we do usually start with kind of a sound-based system decoding and things like that. There are many other parts of reading, though. Um, and in other languages where individual phonemes are less meaningful, and maybe you need to go up to the syllable, or maybe you, you're looking at a larger unit, um, I think that is the case. I don't study that explicitly, but I would I would say the same thing you've heard from other people, that it is it is mixed. Um, and, and that is relevant when we're thinking about multilingual learners coming into the school system. If they have had exposure reading in another language, was it a different strategy than they would maybe need to use learning English or something like that? Interesting. So I, I hear what you're saying. It's kind of like, you know, they had the concept of reading, right? Because they've learned in this other language, but some of the there's yeah. some other pieces, I feel like you keep telling me the same thing over and over again, which is really important though, because for every language, it looks a little different, whether it's characters are different, the space is right. different, or the way that you attack it is just a little bit different. Um, right. So let's talk about those kids that are coming into the school system. Um, I was just sure. on with um, someone from Washoe uh, in, in, in Nevada, and they were telling me that as of 2025, Spanish will be the dominant language in their district. And we have schools in New York that use our product, Amira, and they have so many, I mean, it's just vast, wide array of languages. And so um, when you think about what those kids are bringing from their home language, that isn't English, that could be transferable, that could be supportive of them in English, you know, what, what's the, I, I know that I can, I can imagine there's a vast amount of research around this, but like, what can we tell teachers? What is helpful here? What have we learned? Yeah, so I'll talk about Spanish English specifically because I think it is the most prominent language in many parts of this country, including in Atlanta as um, a second language uh, or first language, a language other than English, Spanish is the most prominent. So um, I think there's a lot that can be transferred and learned from Spanish over into English. So first of all, a lot of the structures are the same in Spanish and English. The sound structure, there are some differences, but a lot of the sound structure is the same. Some of the rules we use are the same between Spanish and English. For example, you know, pluralizing a word in English, you add an S or an S sound, same type of thing happens in Spanish. So I think that there are a lot of structural elements that are the same between Spanish and English that teachers could really capitalize on. But I think another really important aspect is that knowing Spanish means that you have this vast set of background knowledge that you could pull on when you're learning English. So tying back to something that they know, whether that's something that's a part of their culture or something that they speak about with their family um, in Spanish is a great way to build scaffolding, to build those bridges. So I think there's both structural elements that teachers can focus on, things that are literally the same between the two languages, like some of the sounds or some of the rules that are used, but also this like broader richness that they bring by bringing in Spanish and um, that cultural aspect and things like that. Okay. So then that's Spanish, which I think most people have enough exposure to Spanish in the U.S. and many people speak Spanish. They have some like concept yeah. of what we're talking about, but let's talk about a language that like is less common. I think in the U.S., let's say something like Mandarin or Arabic where okay. the characters are different. 
what, yeah. what about those students? And they show up on, on your, on your classroom steps <laughs> yeah. on day yeah. one and they don't speak a lot of, they can't read in English. What would you tell teachers then? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think the, some of the elements I just talked about are going to be the same. So obviously they're going to come in with a rich foundation of background knowledge um, from their, their native language. They're going to come in with cultural um, items that are relevant to them, things that you could connect with um, in terms of that. Structurally, they'll be very different. So you can't really rely on that. But I think um, two things come to mind. Number one, I think in some cases, and this is not necessarily teacher driven, I think this is more like resource driven, but there's a tendency when there isn't a lot of similarity between the languages to just focus on English because you don't see the connection that you can make and kind of um, assume that the development of the other language will happen at home or outside of the school context. And I think that can really hurt kids. Um, so I would say first, don't, even if you don't see the kind of same structural similarities that are very obvious between Spanish and English, don't, um, forget that they have this rich language that they're also learning at home that can be, um, a foundation or a facilitator for learning English. Um, the other thing I would say is that, uh, I've done work and other people have done some work to suggest that when languages are more distant, bilinguals actually rely on that executive functioning system we were talking about earlier more. And so these kids might be coming in with some non-linguistic skills that can really help them in learning in the classroom that teachers could lean into. So they might have a lot more practice thinking about how to balance, you know, different language systems or how to manage the conflict that might arise because the languages are so different. And so while it's not a linguistic thing, executive functioning is important in all sorts of learning contexts. And so that might be something that teachers could lean into relying on that additional practice that these kids might have, having to balance these two languages that are very, very different. I think that's a really good point. I think that anybody who's working in school right now is definitely hearing the words executive functioning over and over and again. And we're seeing it in that it's yeah. really impacting students' abilities to learn, to be organized, to a, a lot of different things. And so this idea of there's this other strength that we could unlock even before yeah. we can to teach them to read that I think, I think that's really a neat idea. Um, so let me ask you this. When you think about your research um, and you think about the different, are it, and you have, I know, I know so, I saw some stuff around kids who were learning in Hebrew. Is most of your research English and Spanish speakers though? Students who speak English and Spanish? Yeah. So my research is a little mixed. Um, so a lot of my work in um, young kids is mostly English and Spanish, and that's constrained mostly by access to materials that are normed in both languages. So in research, we're kind of constrained, and I'm sure teachers are constrained in the classroom as well, um, by resources that have been normed across languages so that when we're looking at language abilities or reading abilities in the two languages, it's easy for us to compare, you know, what is the balance, where are the skills, where are the challenges. Um, so a lot of my work with kids is in English and Spanish, but more broadly, especially when I um, am not looking specifically at reading or I'm looking at English as a second language. And so the first language can be much more variable. I have research across the spectrum. So um, Hebrew speakers, Chinese, um, Korean, all sorts of language pairings. Um, but in kids, it's mostly English, Spanish. And that's primarily because that's where we have the standardized assessments and the um, normed samples in both languages. But I would love if there were normed samples in many, many other languages, but it's very challenging. Um, so I understand why they don't exist, but it is expanding. Um, so hopefully in the future, I can kind of expand that work too. That's really interesting. I, I, it makes total sense. It's not something I've really thought about before, um, but it makes total sense. I have to ask, do you know, are, are reading assessments really different in other countries? 
That's a really good question. So I have a couple collaborators um, in other countries, but we've primarily, you know, I would usually do like the English side and they would do the, the Hebrew side or something like that. So I haven't looked at reading assessment in other countries. Um, they absolutely exist, obviously. Um, but I think we would have the same issue in that they may only exist in that language and haven't been, you know, co-normed with English. So even if we were able to go out to other countries and find the reading assessments that they're using, I think we would still have the same challenge because it's not in both languages. Um, but it would be a good starting point because those would be standardized assessments in that language that have been tested and um, shown to, you know, really illustrate the individual differences in the kids. So yeah, I haven't looked at that, but it's a good idea to at least start there. And then we can see, okay, where do we want to co-norm it to see for our bilingual kids, their language, their languages that they know. I'll be honest. I was less worried about your research and I was more thinking about schools and the fact that I'm I'm sure, you know, you've, you've probably listened to the podcast about this, um, Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, in the U S we kind of took this balanced literacy road that really hurt a lot of kids and left a lot of kids behind because we weren't considering the neuroscience of teaching literacy and we weren't thinking about kids. And so my thought was, okay, if all of these other countries have assessments that they stuck to while we were, you know, on our lane over here doing whatever we were doing, could we have like, you know, caught ourselves earlier. And I, and that, that's really where my mind was going was how do we help the kids? But I, I hear you, yeah. let me know when you find the other assessments <laughs> that we can maybe find a way to norm them with English and keep them going here. So should we ever, you know, dilly dally somewhere else, we get, we get back on track faster. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. I always have that like research mind, which, you know, it's interesting. Um, we met earlier at a conference that brought together a lot of people, researchers, practitioners, educators, um, people in the ed tech space, all sorts of different voices. And I thought that conference was so wonderful because we are coming from different perspectives and we are thinking about these problems from different ways. And I think the only way to find these types of solutions that help the kids, the teachers, the administrators, the researchers, like is to bring all the voices together. So yeah, I was thinking of from the research <laughs> mind, but I, I agree that there are other ways to think about it. And I think honestly, these types of conversations are so important because, you know, it's hard to see someone else's perspective. So well, and I think, you know, you bring up the Reading League Conference, and I think what they do so well there is bring the research back to teachers and back to educators in such like a, yeah. a digestible way. Um, let me ask you this question about research, and then we're going to talk a little bit about you. Um, this question okay. I have that you kind of just brought up is, and, and I don't know how much experience you have with this, because I know you have a lot of projects at Emory. You have the, the Babel group, and you have your classes that you teach. But do you have an interest in helping your research get back to the classroom? And if so, how hard is that? I absolutely do. And it is difficult for many reasons. Um, so I I think, um, one, I just got to Atlanta, I just got to Emory. So building those connections is the first barrier. Um, so once those connections are built, those relationships are built, I think that there's additional barriers that can be challenging. One, teachers don't have a lot of time or resources or energy to add additional things to the classroom. They already have a lot that's on their plate. So a researcher coming in and saying, hey, even if they're coming in with the perspective of, I want to help you, I want to help the kids, I want to help the school, it can still be a lot to say, can you add something else to your plate? So that's one barrier that is completely legitimate. Um, and then the other barrier is a lot of the work that I do is neuroscience related. And a lot of the tools we use in neuroscience, they just can't go to the classroom. Some of them can, and we're getting better. Um, but you have to be creative in thinking about 
what types of tools can we bring to the classroom to still be learning about um, how a child is learning to read, what challenges and successes they have. And so you have to be really creative in um, thinking about what we do in the lab and bringing it to the classroom setting. There are plenty of researchers that do that. It is just challenging and, and something that you need to be careful um, about and really think kind of outside the box. Um, so I absolutely would like to see my research applied in a classroom in terms of how it can serve the teachers and the kids. And I am currently working on building partnerships to, to make that happen. Um, but there are those you know barriers that we have to get over um, for it to be successful on both sides. It should be mutually beneficial. Yeah, I think you're naming it really well. Um, and as someone who kind of supports the RCTs at Amira, uh, I often feel like I'm saying to researchers, and you you clearly understand this, is, you know, if we spend all day in front of our computers, a kindergarten teacher spends 20 minutes in front of her computer, right? So when you ask her to fill out a survey that takes 30, that's her entire computer time for the day, right? And yeah. so really understanding just how busy and how many constraints they have, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that it's something we all need to keep working on is how do we get this research to the class in the classrooms for both the, the, the research and the testing and things like that, but also back to the teachers so they can use it and, and do better things. For, for sure. Um, yeah, okay. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about you because um, you, you're, you're in this really interesting space right now around, you know, linguistics and literacy and multi-languages. Multi and like, there's a lot happening um, at, at, with language models and everything. And, and yet you choose to focus on, you know, schools, which is, we just identified as hard to be in. There's not a ton of money <laughs> as far as um, funding for that kind of stuff. And I'm just so curious, like, why is this so interesting to you personally? Um, and how did you end up here? Yeah, um, it's interesting you frame it that way. I, um, I There are challenges to, to this type of work, but I think that's true of probably all areas of research. Um, so a little bit about my journey. When I started um, undergrad, I actually thought I wanted to be a pediatrician because I've always been super interested in development. And I thought pediatrics, that makes sense. It's about child development and health. I can serve kids. And then I took my first psychology class and I fell in love with psychology. I realized that there's so much there. I really like the psychological perspective and approach to research, trying to understand um, development from a like knowledge growing as opposed to like applied side. And so I switched over to psychology, um, still interested in development. And I started thinking about language development. And at first I thought I was just going to study, you know, monolingual native English language development, the thing that I had been exposed to. But I, I joined this lab and they were just starting some work looking at bilingual language and reading development. I was like, okay, well, this is still language development. It'll be interesting. Um, and then I, the more I dove into that work, the more I was fascinated by it, the more I realized there are many gaps in that work that we really need to um, find more answers to. There's you know, so much of the U.S. population and the world that are bilingual and we aren't really serving them if we're not studying how, you know, they can be successful. So I just fell more and more in love with both the type of research that needs to be done in this space and the potential, but also the impact and, you know, how um, there is a growing acceptance of diversity in our country and that this type of work is right in line with that understanding that we all bring different things to the table and those are all strengths and um and so yeah I, I just kind of fell into it and fell in love with it and have stayed with it but it's interesting in terms of the reading aspect when I started grad school reading was one of the areas that my advisor had studied and I was like I don't want to study reading reading is boring it's like words on a paper like how could that be interesting at all and then you do your first project and I'm like oh wow 
breeding is actually really challenging. When you break it down to all the different things that have to coordinate together, it's actually super challenging. And like we talked about, it doesn't come naturally. You have to be explicitly taught it. And then there's all these extra layers. If you have a learning difference, or if you're trying to read in your second language, there's so many dimensions that add to that complexity that then I was like, okay, I, I want to study reading. So I went full circle from absolutely not. This would be boring. How could I ever study reading to I want to study reading for the rest of my life. So it, it's been a bit of a, a journey always about development, but not necessarily with the same focus. Okay. So let me ask you a couple of things that I think I heard you said. First of all, you're not, you're not multilingual. I'm not multilingual. No, I am a monolingual. I was so expecting this story from you about how like you grew up and learning two languages oh. and all those things. And instead it's, it's really the research that has driven you to this. That's really, that's really neat. I think a lot of people will find that inspiring because I think so often we think it has to be our experience that we care about. And instead it's, it's someone else for you. That's so interesting. Um, yeah. Okay, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, it's not my personal experience, but I um, have plenty of people in my family, friend, social network where it's their experience. But yeah, I, I'm inspired by those that um, are multilingual, you know, are facing some of the challenges that are associated with being multilingual. And so, yeah, I'm inspired by them as opposed to my personal experience. Okay. And then the other thing I keep hearing you say is like, people are so much more accepting of multilingual learners and so much more interested in this. And it's, it's interesting to hear you say that because in my opinion, you moved from somewhere, Washington, that I think is a little bit more progressive in that to Georgia, which while there is a lot of diversity right now, I think, I, I don't know Georgia specifically, but I do know that across the South, multilingual education is kind of facing some interesting pushback, interesting commentary, I guess. Have you felt, I mean, I know you're just, you're new, newer to Emory, but have you felt that? And was that intentional, that move? Yeah, so I have felt it, although I will say that um, Atlanta as a city within Georgia is uh, much more similar to what I experienced in Western Washington than one might expect for being in the South. Um, I did my postdoc at um, Vanderbilt, so in Nashville, Tennessee, and it was the same type of bubble there. So I will say within the um, direct communities that I mostly interact with, the perspectives align pretty closely to what um, I was experiencing on the, the West Coast. Um, but it is different in terms of a state level and thinking about how education is moving, both elementary and secondary education, as well as higher education. There's a lot of um, movement there politically about the types of things that should be supported in the classroom. Where are the priorities? Who are the priority students? What are the voices we want to hear? Um, so yeah, it is uh, very different to be part of those conversations because I got less of that. Not that it doesn't happen in Washington, but I just got less of it from where I was. Um, and I'm just learning about these different kind of perspectives and conversations that are happening. Um, and hopefully over the many years that I'm here, I will continue to kind of be involved in that and hopefully become an advocate for some of the voices that I think are really important and maybe are being um ignored intentionally or unintentionally. Uh, so yeah, it is interesting to be in this new space. Uh, but like I said, Atlanta itself is kind of a bubble. So in the communities that I am surrounded by most immediately, there is a lot of um, alignment between the perspectives I saw in Washington, as well as some of my own um, and what I'm seeing in those communities. Awesome. And we've talked a lot about teachers and about students, but um, the work that you're doing right now, the class that you're teaching has students who are going to be doctors, students who are in psychology. Tell us a little bit about, about this class that you teach. Yeah, so right now I'm teaching brain and language, which is an undergrad course and a junior level undergrad course. And it's a lot of fun. I really love teaching this course. So it combines 
linguistic aspects. So how do we structure language? What are those different elements of language? And then neuroscience aspects, as well as, you know, cognitive psychology aspects. So how does the brain support language? How does it learn a language? How does it um, process sounds? How does it learn to read? How does it process sign? All those different types of things. So we cover a lot in the class. It's kind of a survey of all sorts of ways in which the brain supports language. But it's really fun to teach. Um, Emory students are fantastic. Um, they're so engaged and interactive. Um, but one of the things I really like about this class is that not only do I come at it from multiple perspectives, but my students are literally from multiple perspectives. So I have linguistic students who maybe have never taken a neuroscience course, but know a lot about the structure of language. I have neuroscience students who, of course, have that brain background, but maybe haven't thought of it in the context of how it supports language. And I have psychology students who maybe have a blend of a little bit of some cognitive, but not necessarily language, some brain. So it's really fun to hear them um, come in and kind of engage with the material in different ways because they're coming from these different perspectives. So I really love teaching this class. It's a lot of fun, um, not only because it's my area of interest, but because I think there's so many parts of it that students can connect with. I mean, language is the way we connect with others. It's the way we learn. It's the way we express ourselves. So I think there's a lot of ways that students see themselves in, in the class, which is fun to see. In your experience, are your students more often monolingual or multilingual that choose this course? So I would say that there's a good mixture. Um, so many of my students are um, U.S. citizens and in the U.S. school system, as, a, as I'm sure you know, um, <laughs> multilingualism isn't always supported. Um, maybe it's added on later in the school system, but it usually isn't early. So a lot of my um, students come from a background where monolingual English was the, the way in which their um, home life was as well as their school life. But I also have a lot of international students or students who um, have come to the U.S. Um, and or grew up here and they were bilingual because of their home life or, or they were in a school where they were exposed to that. So I would say it's a mixture, um, but there's definitely a lot of students that come to the class very interested in the bilingualism aspect, um, whether or not they're bilingual. That varies, but a lot of students are very interested when we do that unit, when we talk about different aspects of language, you know, how does it, how does it relate to bilingualism or is there anything unique or different? So I definitely think that's a topic of interest, um, but varies whether or not they're actually bilingual. Okay. And then the last thing I would love to talk about with Emery is a little bit about Babel and, and what you're doing there. Sure. Yeah. So the Babel lab is my research lab here at Emory um, and we're a year old and rapidly expanding. There's a lot of different things that we're doing that I'm super excited about. Many of them um, mostly spearheaded by my students, which is great to see them jump into the research. But there's a few different things we're, we're kind of pursuing. One very relevant to what we've talked about thus far is a, um, a study looking at how English learners come into the school system in kindergarten and that very, very early literacy learning that happens, you know, what kind of factors predict their success, both from a um, behavioral perspective, as well as from a neuroscience perspective. So looking at their brains and looking at that first year of exposure to school um, and seeing, you know, how far do they get and what what factors predict that that early literacy learning. So that's a project that we're just starting now that I'm super excited about. Um, and then we also have a couple other lines of work, um, some of them looking at how bilingualism interacts with other types of experiences, other um, ways in which it might be challenging to use or learn a language or um, learn to read things like uh, learning uh, disabilities or um, other types of 
neurodiversity, how they interact with bilingual experiences and whether there could be some maybe some protective factors or ways in which they interact. So we also have a couple lines looking at that. And then we have another set of research that's just starting that I'm also excited about, which is shifting from bilinguals to those who speak multiple dialects. So there are many, many dialects that are spoken in the United States, and there's not a lot of work looking at how kids who maybe speak a dialect that isn't the one taught in schools, how they may face challenges coming to the school system. Um, so I'm excited about that line of work as well, because it kind of expands on my bilingualism work to another population that may be experiencing very, very similar challenges, but we aren't really necessarily focusing on how to serve those kids. So th- that's some of the work that's happening um, that I'm excited about. Okay. I thought I was going to move on, but now I have so many questions about the things you just said. So I'm going to go backwards from the things you just said. So okay. the, the kids of the dialects, because it's so interesting you bring this up. At Amira, uh, so the way our company works is we have an AI reading tutor that kids read out loud to. And one of the things that we've spent some time on recently is um, kids who who pronounce things in different di- dialects. I don't know if that's the right yeah. word, but um, I'm going to give you an example of a little boy saying the word axed instead of asked. Yeah. And he got corrected by the AI tutor. She, you know, like helped him sound out the word asked. And he said axed. And like, I I can hear the the recording in my head. He goes, I said axed. I said, you know, like she told me I was wrong. And I can hear him saying that. And it's, it's such an interesting concept of, you know, for him, this is what he knows. And so we, we actually right. spent some time with, with some researchers around, should she correct that or not? And we still don't have our other answer. We're trying out some different things right now, but it's so interesting to have you, have you bring that up. And I'm, I'm sure your, your research is new, but have you found anything like, like a nugget that we could take right now? Yeah. So I'm just starting that line of work. So I'm not the person to ask about that. There are other researchers that are working on um, work in this space, especially with the the dialect that you just mentioned. Sounds right. like it might be African-American um, right. English, um, that dialect. Um, researchers like Julie Washington in California are doing a lot of work in this space. She may be able to speak better about this. But um, I think, you know, the thing we have to consider is maybe the same type of things we're considering for bilingual kids. Some correction is maybe good. Well, maybe not correction, but um, exposure to what mainstream American English or there's many other names for that. But the type of English that's being taught in school is important for kids, right? They need to know that this is a type of language. This is the dialect that you're going to be exposed to in school and academics. If you continue, you need to be able to understand that dialect. So I think that is important, but maybe correction is the wrong word because we don't want the message to be what you're using, your dialect is wrong and this is the right one, more there is another dialect that maybe you don't hear at home or you don't hear in your community that is something else to to learn. So maybe we should have the same perspective as we have, uh, we're trying to have, I should say, in the bilingualism space about really supporting and serving both languages. Same type of thing maybe for students who are coming in with multiple dialects. That would be my thoughts now, but I don't have a lot of um, research uh, in that space yet, but hopefully in a couple of years. Okay. But the nugget I can take from that, at least right now is like, there's an importance of an exposure without like negative correction, right? Like that's the kind of like balance we should at least be trying to strike as we figure this out. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Because you don't want a child to come in and assume that the way that they're speaking is wrong. And I think especially for African-American English, um, there, there has been a cultural and societal perspective that it is just wrong English. And that's not true. It is a, it is a full dialect. It has a a structure and rules that it follows just like any other dialect. And so I think that would be where I would hesitate making the child feel like it's wrong more. There's another way to say this. There's another version of English. And so framing it that way, I think um, would be better. 
Okay. And then the next one that I said I was going to work my way back, you were talking about um, special education services for students who are, who are multilingual. And it's interesting to me because I live in Boulder, Colorado. And um, in Boulder, we had kind of a reckoning because what we saw was students who were Spanish speakers were mm-hmm. being way over-identified for special education services um, yeah. and getting IEPs as compared to their peers. And so there was some you know, federal yeah. intervention around that. Um, and so I'm just curious, can you just give us a little bit about, about what your research has shown so far? Yeah. Um, so I have done a little bit of work in this space and I've seen very similar things as what you're seeing um, in terms of disproportionate representation. Although in the um, spaces I've looked at it, which are mostly in Northeastern um, districts, I tend to see underrepresentation, but still it's disproportionate representation. So um, as I'm sure you know, and many listeners know, there is federal regulation that someone's language experience at home should not interact with their disability status. Um, and yet what we're seeing looks like you're seeing in Colorado. What I'm seeing in some of my data is that's absolutely not the case, especially when we start to consider the many different ways in which someone could be a dual language learner or user. So you may come in as an English learner. You may be proficient in both your languages. Um, so you're more of a, um, a full bilingual. Maybe you started as an English learner and transitioned into being bilingual. So there's all different variants of kids in this, in this group. And, um, what I tend to see after you've controlled for things like, um, SES and race and other social and demographic factors that we know relate to academic success is this underrepresentation and many different um, special education categories. So I think we're seeing the same type of problem, maybe manifesting in different ways. But yes, absolutely. And I've looked at it at multiple years and unfortunately doesn't seem to be um, fixing itself yet. Um, but I think a big part of it is just awareness, bringing up the fact that this is a problem. And so more research or understanding in this space, I think, is important because um, hopefully if we can make it clear that it is a problem, there can be more uh, legislation like you were talking about that can help tackle tackle the problem. I think this really overlaps what we're talking about with literacy and like seeing um, the other language a child might come in with as a strength and like this ability yes. to build on that. I think that this is all just like the learning we all have to do about the way kids' brains works and, and, and what it right. means to be multilingual. So I think that's really helpful. Um, okay. And the last one is just like pure selfishness because I have three-year-old twins, <laughs> uh, who are, who are going to be in kindergarten and not in no time at all. And so when you think about your early learners and what you've learned there about, you know, the behavior and the neuroscience around being able to read, you know, how can I help my kids? That's the question. <laughs> ah, that's such a good question. Um, so I think just reading with them, exposing them to the act of reading, um, the joy of reading, that is so important, especially for the little ones that maybe aren't quite ready for the early literacy steps, um, but they are totally ready to engage in book learning and figuring out that reading can be enjoyable, that you can learn things, that it's a way to connect with people or connect with other worlds. So I think that's super important, which I'm sure you probably already do. But just to, to um, highlight that, um, I think that's for sure important. Um, and I think a lot of the um, other things will happen when they get to school. So yes, you can start practice, practicing sounds and letters and things like that. They can come in with that, that background knowledge, but really just exposing them to the act of reading, the joy of reading, you know, practicing your, your finger over the words. So they start to realize that you're reading those words, those types of behaviors and just modeling that I think is such an important foundation that parents can set for kids before they get to school and start getting the explicit learning. 
Yeah. I think, I, I think I, that brings me back to that thing we were talking about earlier about like understanding the concept of what reading is. Yeah, exactly. It's super important. Um, it's been really interesting yeah. having twins because my kids are totally different. And so one of my, one of my three-year-olds is, is getting close to reading. She knows letters and sounds and can kind of decode and blend and things like that. And the other one can't find his name. <laughs> like, yeah. he's like, I don't know. You know, it's just so interesting that like we did nothing yeah. differently and they just are different people. And so on their own trajectories as readers. So I appreciate that. All right. We are running low on time. So we're going to go to um, the five questions we ask every guest. Uh, and thank you so much. We have covered so many things in the last uh, 35, 40 minutes. So this has been really fun listening to all the things that you know and research and all the time that you put into this. But um, the first question is, the podcast is called More Than a Test. And we call it that because at Amira, our, uh, every time a child reads with Amira, that information, that data is given back to teachers. And we think that the assessment as a reader should be every day, not three times a year in a benchmark assessment. So we call it yeah. More Than a Test. Uh, but every guest hears More Than a Test and thinks of something different. So when you heard More Than a Test, what did you think of? Yeah. So what I thought of is actually related to some of my work in the multilingual space. And that is that um, often those types of assessments, not at Amir and other places that have really uh, made the effort to have assessments in multiple languages, but many assessments we have in school aren't really normed or standardized for our multilingual learners. And so it's not really truly reflecting their abilities or their capacity or their potential. So when I heard more than a test, the way that I heard it was, that a child is more than that one standardized assessment that they were given, that there are so many other aspects and maybe even that test isn't showing their potential. That's kind of how I interpreted it. Maybe similar to what you were going, uh, no, going that's for. that's great. I love the way you've come full circle on the norming yeah. <laughs> around English assessments. I think that's great. Um, okay, tell me about a literary moment in your life. And what we mean by that is a moment of you in a book that either changed your life or is like your happy place or is just like something that really means a lot to you. Yeah, uh. I really like reading, so this is difficult uh, to pick a moment. Um, all right, I'll pick this moment. So I probably was in about maybe fifth or sixth grade, and I um, had this experience where I, I grew up going to the library with my family, so book reading was um, definitely something that was supported in my home. But when we went to the library, it was a family experience and kind of picking the books was a family experience. So in about fifth or sixth grade, I have this vivid memory of going into the library by myself. Um, the school library. And um, I was like looking through the books and I found this book. I don't remember what it was, uh, the title of it, but it was some like sci-fi futuristic story or something, something like I had never read. And I decided to pick it and I checked it out and I read it and I was just so captured by the story. And I remember thinking like, wow, I'm so fortunate that I can pick any book I want I can go into any world I want. I can learn about whatever I want through reading. It was just really powerful because I did it on my own. You know, previously I'd always been with my family, with my parents, with my siblings and things. But this was me going into the library, picking a book that I wanted and being able to read it and kind of be immersed in that futuristic world. So that I think was a moment that changed yeah. my perspective on um, how reading could impact me. Uh, so yeah, I'll pick that moment. That's really neat. I really appreciate you sharing that. I think that that first moment of a library by yourself really is something that a lot of people have. Um, a piece of technology that you love. Ooh, um, well, I could not live without my laptop. So I probably have to pick that um, it, in every aspect of my life, whether that's um, in my teaching, I use it, in my mentorship, in my research, I use it, in my everyday life, um, I use it. It also gives me access to new technologies, new software. So I think a laptop is what I'd have to pick um, 
maybe a little too reliant on it, but yeah. <laughs> All right. That makes sense. I always say it's not really a vacation unless the laptop stays home. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and which is rare. Um, okay. And the best advice you've ever been given? Ooh. Um, so, okay. What comes to mind is not quite advice. Maybe it's more of a mindset, but I think it really has pushed my trajectory. So I'll share this and hopefully um, it fits the question enough. Um, so in grad school, um, I was working on some of my first projects and for anybody that is in the research space, they probably know that there are many, many ups and downs in research, um, maybe more downs than ups sometimes. And there's a lot of delayed gratification because you might have an idea and you're super excited about it, but it might be years and years before you actually get to implement it, get data, discover some answers. So, um, in some of those moments, I was having conversations with my grad advisor and she said, you know, as a scientist, you get to be the first person in the world to know something. And then you get to share that with the world. And I just thought that was such a powerful perspective to think about how we do research, how we, you know, learn about something and that we get to be part of that growing knowledge in the world and we get to share it with people and we get to see the impact. So it's not necessarily advice, but it's been super impactful. And it's something I say to my mentees and my students now in those hard moments where maybe you're a little bit frustrated or it's not working the way you want to to step back and say, yeah, but we get to be scientists. We get to be researchers. We get to be learners. We get to find out something about the world and then we get to share it and see the impact. So not quite advice, but more of maybe a mindset, but it's been really impactful on how I approach um, my my science and how I try to um, help my students approach their science as well. I'm not even a scientist and it gave me goosebumps. I really love that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. And then the last question is one book you think everyone should read. So uh, one of the books that, um, well, I guess maybe it was about a year ago, so maybe not recently, but I read within the last year that I think is fantastic is called The Neuroscience of You, which actually was written by my grad advisor, Dr. Chantal Pratt. Um, so I know that neuroscience sometimes is, uh, intimidating for people, but I think she is an excellent writer. She really captures, um, individual differences, the way in which all of our brains vary, but in a way that is understandable, approachable. Um, you can really connect to the story. There's also little tests you can do to kind of learn more about yourself. So, um, the book is called The Neuroscience of You. I would highly recommend it. Super engaging. There's also an audio book that she recorded. And I think her speaking is also engaging. So I would recommend that book, especially if you're interested in neuroscience at all. But even if you're just interested in humans or you yourself, um, I, I think it's a great read. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. I haven't looked it up, but I will. Have a great rest of your day. Have a great weekend. Thank you for spending time with us before you go teach. This was really lovely. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us on the More Than a Test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader, and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week, and thanks for joining. <laughs>